We're going to read the first ten verses tonight. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. This is the first miracle recorded in the book of Acts. Now, living in the 1990s, miracles are passé. They have been attacked for a number of years, and today, miracles are not looked upon with great favor by the secular world. In fact, most people disregard them completely. Because, they say, we're in the age of enlightenment now, not the age of superstition. We don't believe in those things anymore. We can explain them by natural phenomenon. Now, when people were in the dark ages and they believed superstitiously in powers that be beyond scientific explanation, that's when miracles were possible because of ignorance. But now we're so enlightened and we know that miracles are not possible. And from way back, but chiefly in the 18th century to the 20th century, has been the foremost attack against the miraculous by certain philosophers and higher critics, Spinoza, Hume, many philosophers who disregard the idea of God intervening in the miraculous. Also, there has been a tendency on the part of even Christians to minimize miracles or to explain them away, to over-naturalize them. You've heard perhaps people say, oh, the sun rising every morning, that's a miracle. The birth of a baby, that's a miracle. No, it's not. It happens to happen all the time. That's just the laws of nature that God has established. I guess it would be miraculous because you and I can't cause those things to happen, but that's just part of nature. It's really not miraculous. We have a tendency to oversimplify miracles. I looked up in Webster's Dictionary the definition of miracle. I like to use Webster's every now and then, just to see what they say. Sometimes I don't like their definitions. Sometimes I do. But Webster said that a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. In other words, God steps in to our history and intervenes and does something against natural law. As we see here in Acts chapter 3, lame men don't get up every day when they've been lame for 40 years since birth. Now, that's miraculous. 
That's why people were filled with awe and amazement. They didn't say, oh, miracle, isn't it great? I mean, they were filled with wonder because those things don't happen. It was divine intervention into human affairs. When it comes to the miraculous, I think that miracles can occur in two ways. Miracles can defy natural law, which is usually the case. Men don't walk on water, and when Jesus walked on the water, that defied natural law, the law of gravity. A human body doesn't displace water adequately enough to float just by standing. So that was miraculous. Uh, when Jesus turned water to wine, that defied the natural laws put into existence in the universe. But then some miracles can work within the laws of nature. For instance, Paul and Silas were in prison in the book of Acts. We'll get to it later. And while they were in prison singing to the Lord, an earthquake shook the prison. And the chains that were around their wrists dropped off, broke like threads, and the gate opened. And the keeper of the prison was about ready to kill himself when he saw all of this happening. Now, earthquakes happen all the time. That is not miraculous. That's a simple law of nature. Pressure within the earth and all of those factors cause many earthquakes, but it happened at just the right time. That was miraculous. We see other occurrences of this. For instance, Elijah, who proclaimed a drought and said it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. Now, we've had droughts before. In the United States, we've had droughts. The miraculous thing isn't so much that droughts occurred. The miraculous thing is Elijah said, at my word, it will not rain until I open my mouth again and I pray. And from day one to the end was three and a half years according to the word of Elijah, but it was miraculous. Whenever you put God into the picture, you have to remove all limitations. What you and I would call a miracle a genuine, bona fide, God-intervened miracle, to God is not a big deal. To us, it's a miracle, and we should be filled with awe and amazement. But to God, it's not... He doesn't sit back and go, Wow! I'm amazed I pulled that off. I did a good job, but I didn't expect that. It's not a miracle at all to God. When you put Him into the picture, it removes all limitations. And I've often said, and I still believe, that if you can believe Genesis 1, verse 1, the first verse in the Bible, everything else comes easy to you when it comes to the ability of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, light be. Boom, light was. Now, if God can do that, just by speaking it into existence then there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And so, when we speak of the miraculous, for God, it's not that big of a deal. God said, my ways are not your ways. My ways are above your finding out. And I know of no better example of the truth of that verse than looking at the miraculous. God intervening in the affairs of man. Let's say you were to take a television set to a jungle tribe that had never seen nor heard of telecommunication. And you were able to bring a generator out there and a little antenna and pick up some sitcom, let's say. 
and you turn it on. And these people who live in the jungles of Borneo or India or Thailand, who've never seen one before, see these four-inch human beings inside of a box. I guarantee you they would flip out. They would think, how did you shrink people to get them that small and stick them inside of a box? Now, we're enlightened. So we think, oh, we know what that is. That's television. There are waves that travel through the air. They're picked up from that transmitter into a receiver, converted into a picture. Ah, we know about that. That's not a big deal. But to many people who've never seen it before, it is a big deal. Now, we look at something that is miraculous, and we think, that's a big deal. That's like the native looking at the little people inside the box. He walked on water. She rose from the dead. We read of these things in the Bible. We think, that's that's amazing. But God's enlightened. To Him, He is only following a higher set of laws that have come into existence. God works on an entirely different plane. We live in a lower plane. When God performs a miracle, it's perfectly reasonable how that could happen to God. We haven't figured it out yet. It's miraculous still. It defies the laws of nature. Now, you might have trouble with that. Think, I don't think that laws of nature, that God would even want to tamper with them, or that it would happen, that God would intervene in the natural course of human events, in natural law. But look at it with another example. I go to an international airport, a little bigger than ours, and I look out on the runway and I see big 747 jumbo jets. And I've always looked at those things. The first time I saw one, I thought, that thing can't fly. I mean, look how big it is. It's made out of metal. It weighs tons. It has 6,000 cubic feet of space for luggage. And you know how people travel these days. They cram it full. You can fit over 500 people in it. And it's so heavy, you think, there's no way. There's a law that says it can't go up in the air. It's called the law of gravity. If it's sitting up in the air and nothing's below it, it's going to fall down to the earth. Some of you think, oh, I know where you're going. There are other laws that can, in a sense, supersede the law of gravity. You put the law of thrust, so you put jet engines on that baby, and you mix that with the law of aerodynamics, you have wind passing just right over wings, a large surface, and you put those two laws together, and that airplane will defy the law of gravity and travel from point A to point B. Is it a miracle? No. Some laws supersede the law of gravity. Well, God does a miracle, and we go, wow, the, he's lame from birth, he walked. God says, it was easy. Put God into the picture, and it's always easy. That's why God always reminded his servants, when they were flipping out, and they were at the end of their rope, wondering if something would happen if they trusted God, God would often say, is there anything too hard for me? Just think about that for a minute. Genesis 1.1, remember in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Now is there anything too hard for me? That was a pretty good trick, by the way. I created the heavens and the earth. If I can do that, can't you trust me with this little problem? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Won't you just lean on me and trust me? Oh, this would take a miracle. Alright, so what? We see here that God performed His miracle. My ways are not your ways. Now, chapter 3, there is kind of a transition we're seeing. 
we are now going to trace the very reason why Christianity becomes unpopular, especially in a Jewish culture. Now, Jesus already was unpopular with many of the leaders, but he was still popular with many of the normal townspeople. The common people followed him gladly. We see a transition in chapter 3 where the Jewish people will expel the apostles from Jerusalem. Christians become very unpopular. Now, look over in chapter 2, verse 43. It says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Many wonders and signs were done. Of all of the signs and the wonders that were performed by God through His apostles, Luke, the writer of this book, isolates one. He doesn't cover all of them in this book. He's showing us a transition. And he picks the one we just read about to show us why Christianity took the change that it did. Why Christians eventually were expelled from Jerusalem because this miracle brought conflict. It was this miracle that started really separating Christians from the rest of mainline Judaism. Just for a little refresher course here. Remember the two prominent groups of Jews that existed in the New Testament? One group was called Pharisees. The other group was called Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were the legalists. They believed in the Old Testament law, but they also believed in the oral law, the traditions of the fathers. They took the Old Testament and they made some 611 laws and sub-laws under all of those laws. 365 of those laws were negative. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And they put such legalistic burdens upon people. And they really twisted the Old Testament Scripture so that the Jews had no liberty, no freedom. They were just kind of shaking their pious little finger at everybody, saying, that's wrong. I'm going to separate myself from you because you're not as holy as I am. And we remember in the Gospels, this was the group that gave Jesus the biggest problem. Because they didn't dance to their tune. Jesus never broke the law, but they thought he did. And there was a time when Jesus was actually sitting in a bar, if you will, with publicans and sinners. Now, he wasn't sinning with them, but he was sharing with them. And these Pharisees walked by, holding their holy, pious robes close to their body, thinking, I can't believe that, Jesus. I mean, I believe in separation. I believe in holiness. Look at Jesus sitting among the beer bottles with those tax collectors who rip us off and those sinners. What's he doing in that house at that party? And Jesus, reading their mind, said, you know what? Hypocrites. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. They gave Jesus the biggest problem. They were the legalists. In the book of Acts, the Pharisees are not the chief enemies of Christianity. It shifts. The Sadducees become the big guns. Because the Sadducees, they were the liberals. They were the rationalists. They did not believe in anything miraculous. There's something really interesting. The Sadducees were the more educated of the groups. They weren't as separated. They felt, I'm so educated, I'm so enlightened. I don't have to be so narrow as the Pharisees. And because I'm so enlightened, 
I don't believe in the miraculous. The Sadducees did not believe that there is a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the miraculous. Well, this miracle caused a conflict, number one, because it was a miracle. And people knew the man who sat at that gate every day asking for alms. It was a visible sign that miracles are possible. And secondly, the disciples used this to preach the resurrection from the dead, and that ticked the ferret or the Sadducees off because they didn't believe in it. And so Luke isolates this miracle to show that the enemies of Christianity, of Jesus, are now coming against the church and there's going to be a separation, chiefly the Sadducees. So what happens in verse 47 is going to cease to happen. Of chapter 2, notice verse 47. They were praising God and they were having favor with all of the people. Well, it's just about to end. They're not going to have favor anymore with all of the people. They're going to be enemies of all of the people. It says, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. First of all, notice who they are. Peter and John. I can't think of two more opposite personalities as I compare these guys in the New Testament. Peter was more of an impetuous, loud mouth, stick your foot in your mouth, not think before you act, doer of deeds type of a guy. John was the poetic, reserved a dreamer of dreams type of a person. They were opposite in temperament, and yet we see they're in harmony. They're going up together into the temple to do what? To pray. Isn't it beautiful how that prayer can bring two or three or four people together that otherwise would be so opposite of each other? I mean, they wouldn't get along. They might not even agree doctrinally, but you have them bow their heads and start praising the Lord and worshiping God and praying to that common source. And all of a sudden, those walls seem so incidental. They're going up together to pray. I think of a situation when Jesus rose from the dead. Just to give you an example how different these guys are. Peter had failed the Lord. Jesus rose from the dead, went to Galilee. It was Peter that Jesus took aside and restored. Remember, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And after he restored Peter, and he said, now, Peter, I restored you, and I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend my lambs. But i got to tell you something that's going to happen to you. When you were young, you could get up and do whatever you wanted to do. You were your own boss. You went wherever you wanted to go, uh, go and did whatever you wanted to do. But there's going to come a time when others will lead you where you don't want to go. And others will clothe you. And he was prophetically speaking of how Peter would die as a martyr. As soon as Jesus predicts what Peter's going to do, Peter turns, looking at John, and says, what about him? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. And if I want him to remain alive till I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. But Peter was this doer, this person who was worried about everybody else, this bold, impetuous type. God used that in his life, but it was also a detriment. I can't think of two more opposite people, but yet they're together and they're going up to the temple to pray. And I think that's interesting, don't you think? They're going up to the temple to pray. They are Christians now, following the Lord, yet they see no inconsistency in going to synagogues and going to the temple after they knew Jesus. See, this is important, especially to the Jew, because there is this belief that has prevailed amongst the Jews that if you become a Christian, you cease to become a Jew. It's not true. 
Jesus was Jewish. Peter was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Most of the Christians in the early church were Jewish. And where did Paul go when he first went to a new town? Did he go to the local church? No, there weren't any church buildings. Did he find a kinship group? No, he went to the synagogue because he was a Jew. And the Gospel went to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. They still prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They felt no inconsistency. Yet, when they went to the temple and when they went to the synagogue, they worshipped like no one else worshipped. They knew while they were in that synagogue, while they were in that temple, that they were worshipping the God who sent the Messiah. And they were what many call today completed Jews. They received Jesus as their Messiah. And it made their worship all the more meaningful. I bet some of you have had that experience. You may have grown up in a church all of your life. And it was dead to you. It was meaningless. It was ritualistic. It was just something to do because you were forced to do it. And then one day God broke through to your heart and you accepted Jesus Christ and the light went on. And the first time you went back to church, it was like a whole new place. You went, wow. I never saw this before. I never experienced this before. God was alive to you. These people are going to the temple and yet they're growing in such a beautiful way. I also want you to notice in verse 1 that they went to what's called the hour of prayer. The hour of prayer is something very specific to the Jews. The Jews had three times in Jerusalem where they would meet every day, whoever could, three times of daily prayer. They would get together at 9 in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 in the afternoon for what is called the hour of prayer, and then they would have the sacrifice in the morning, the morning sacrifice, in the evening, the evening sacrifice. The men would gather in the courts, the women would gather in the courts, they'd sing praises to God, they'd pray to Him, they'd worship. After that, there would be the burning of incense by the priest. And remember, it was Zacharias who was performing this job when the angel came to him and said, Zacharias, you're going to have a little boy named John. It was during one of these sacrifices. They're going up for the hour of prayer. Listen to what David says in one of his psalms concerning this. He says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud. Daniel, when he was in captivity, it said that he faced Jerusalem and three times a day prayed. It was customary to face Jerusalem, or if you're in Jerusalem, you don't have to face it, you're there. But simply to go to the temple and go through the sacrifice and have an hour of prayer. Now, just for fun, let me share with you how that hour was broken up. The first 15 minutes of that hour at the temple was spent in silence. They didn't say anything. Ever been in a prayer meeting where there's silence and you feel uneasy? I mean, come on, we've got to say something. There was 15 minutes of dead silence where people would meditate upon God. The Jews would think of all of His wonderful works, the Red Sea, the crossing of Jordan, the giving of the land, God's benefits to them personally, and they would just start getting the perspective of who they're praying to. I think that's so important. We often rush into the presence of God crying, Oh God! And we're just shaken. We're just so flipped out because of our circumstances we can't see anything else. I think it would do us well to just button it up. Zip it up. And listen. And think and contemplate. I am 
addressing an awesome, powerful, loving Father. That's why Jesus said, when you start praying, don't say, give us this day our daily bread. He said, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come as we meditate upon his greatness. Fifteen minutes of silence, meditating on God's glory. Then there was a half an hour of offering up prayers, petitions, intercession. Often they were memorized prayers, sometimes spontaneous. Depended on the person, depended on if they were Pharisees, Sadducees, or just the street person. Then the last 15 minutes was divided up into thanksgiving and worship and praise. Thanking God for His benefits. Vocalizing worship and praise to God. In other words, it was a well-balanced hour of prayer. And I think there's a real lesson in that for all of us. That our prayer life should be very balanced. Not just one-sided, but multifaceted. Again, we have a tendency to regard the Lord as if He is a heavenly Sears catalog. To rush into His presence and say, Dear Lord, I want this and I need that. Amen. Yes, I prayed today. I spent some time with God. Well, you spent time yakking at Him. But you never listened to Him. You never thanked Him. And so there was that thanksgiving. There was that well-balanced hour of prayer. I remember when I was a kid, some fond memories, some not so fond. But there was a point where I don't remember, and that was when I was a baby. But according to my mom, I was like the average little baby. And when I was hungry as a baby, guess what I did? Wah! And I was a, I was a screamer. And if it didn't taste right, if the temperature wasn't right, if my diapers were wet, I cried and I screamed. Eventually, my communication skills developed slightly as I grew older. And I didn't need to cry anymore. I found out that I could articulate words. I learned how to talk. And my communication skills developed from just I want, I need, I demand, or to crying, to crying, to, to articulating and saying, I want that, Mom. I need that, Mom. And Nathan's at that age right now. Not please may have it, but I need that. Now he's getting better. He's progressed. It used to just be a cry. Now he's articulating it. And he's also learning to ask nicely, but it's still for himself. And oftentimes he's very manipulative like every normal child is. We want something bad enough and so we'll do anything to get it. I grew out of that somewhat, hopefully, a lot. I can't remember the last time where I called my mom and dad on the phone and said, I want, I need, I demand. Now I call them up and say, how are you feeling? How's dad's ankle? I know he broke it. Is it feeling any better? I miss you guys. I love you guys. Is there anything I can do for you? You see, my relationship of communication with them has taken on a whole different form. It's not, it's not, I need, it's, I love you. It's two-sided. I appreciate you. Is there anything I can do for you? Now that's well-balanced communication. And well-balanced prayer is far more than writing him a Christmas list and naming them all off. 
Well-balanced prayer is where we realize His greatness, we give Him thanks, we give Him glory, and we're in His throne room asking Him for things. He invited us to ask, but He commanded us to praise. And that's balance. It says then in verse 2, A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. He was one of the very many beggars that dotted Jerusalem. I'm amazed at how times haven't changed in Jerusalem. Some of you have been with us on our trips over to Israel. And you step into the old city of Jerusalem, and it's as if you have stepped back two, 3,000 years. The way the people barter with each other. You see ladies carrying baskets on their heads, sheep through the middle of the town. You, you would just swear... You've stepped back into time. As you walk through some of the gates, especially the modern Damascus gate leading out of Jerusalem, north to Damascus, there are from 20 to 50 beggars there at a time who are sitting down, perched at the gate with their hands open, expecting to receive something. It's very similar to this scene here. But picture it. Every a.m., somebody carried this guy. And he has been doing this, or he has been in this condition for 40 years. How do I know that? Look over at chapter 4. It says in verse 22, For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Forty years in a lame condition. Forty years he was robbed of the joys of growing up like a normal child. The joys of childhood running and playing with the kids. Forty years with his congenital anomaly. And now he's 40 years old and they have to carry him to the temple every day. And he's begging alms from the people. He went to a place called the Gate Beautiful, which had an incredible panoramic view. It was one of the gates in the temple that led from one court to another court. And you could see all over the Temple Mount through the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives. And he just sat there every day with his hand out, expecting to receive something from the people. You know what interested me as I was reading this this morning? Is that he was poor, he was lame, and he was in the temple. And the people of the temple had no problem with him seeking out a need in their congregation. And this guy felt very much at home to be poor and be in need and be among God's people. He wasn't shut out. He didn't feel like, you know what, I, I feel like I just can't hang around this temple. I, think, I feel like I need to wear a suit and a tie and act a certain way and have a certain income. He felt very much at home being lame and being poor, being around God's people and asking for money there. The reason that this guy was in the temple is a principle that runs throughout all of Scripture and I believe that every child of God eventually needs to come to grips with this truth. That is that God has a soft spot in his heart for poor people. You see it all throughout the Bible. God has reserved this special tender little spot for people who are the underdogs, people who are in poverty, people who can't help themselves. God made commandments in the Old Testament, provision in the Old Testament where people actually didn't have a choice. 
If you were a landowner, you would harvest your crops, but you would never harvest the very corners of the field so that the poor people could come in and take whatever they needed to any time. It was called gleaning. You would plant your crops. On the seventh year, you'd just kick back and let the land grow whatever it needs to. you give the land a rest so that the poor people could again come in and just live off it during that year. Tithes were given. But part of the tithe was given specifically for the poor. God had a place in His heart for the poor person. Then you get to the time when God pointed His finger at Israel and said, you've disobeyed me. You haven't let the land enjoy its Sabbaths. You haven't taken care of the poor. Because of that, I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 years and punish you for your iniquity. God meant business. You get to the New Testament. You see, they had all things in common. There was never a person who was poor who was without. They all had everything they needed. When Paul the Apostle went out on his missionary journey, it says in the book of Galatians, as he was going out, the leaders of the church said, go with God, but Paul remembered the poor. And Paul said, I was glad to do it. That was in my heart to do also. God has always had a place in his heart for the poor person. Something else I, I just can't help but notice in that verse And that is, here is a man who's sitting at the gate. He's been lame from birth. And everybody knew this man because they passed him by daily. And I say that's interesting because Jesus certainly passed this man by on frequent occasions going into the temple to pray. It was the common entrance to the temple. For any male Jew to get past the court of the Gentiles, you would go past the gate beautiful to the court of the women and to the court of the men. And no doubt, if this man's been 40 years old and he's been there for quite a long time, that Jesus passed this man and this man was never touched by Jesus. He was never healed. I find that very interesting. And we ask the automatic question, why? Why wasn't Je- why didn't Jesus heal this person? You know, we read of the healings of Jesus and we think that every sick person in Judea and Galilee was automatically healed by Jesus. He wasn't. Jesus healed many people who came to Him, but for every person He healed, there was a hundred withered muscles out there that hadn't been touched by Him. And here's one of them. Remember the pool of Bethesda? Jesus came there and saw a man who was in distress. And He said, what are you doing here? He goes, well... I'm waiting to be healed. When the water is stirred up, I'll go down and I'll be healed. But the Bible says there was a multitude of sick people in that place. And Jesus only touched one of them. And yet Jesus, if you please, had the audacity to at the end of his ministry, after only three short years, he said, it is finished Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, I have come to do and to finish the will of my Father. And then he hangs on the cross. He says, it's finished. And somebody might say, wait a minute. What do you mean it's finished? You healed this guy, but what about that guy? That guy's still in pain. What about me? I'm sick. You haven't healed me, Lord. But Jesus said it's finished. You know, we often think that it is God's will to heal every single 
malady, every single person. Jesus left this one for Peter and John. And I don't think that every single person in Judea and Galilee or throughout the surrounding regions were healed necessarily by the apostles after this point. And yet Jesus said it's finished. On a daily basis, Jesus received the will of the Father. He did what God the Father told him to do. He didn't do every bit of ministry. He did exactly what the Father commissioned the Son to perform. And he knew from hearing from his Father by spending time in communion and prayer with him every day what his Father's will was. And so he did what God told him to do, what the Father told him to do. He was able to say it's finished. A lot of us take the world's burdens and place them on our shoulder. We think that we must do everything. Because there are, yes, millions of people who have never heard the gospel, so I and I alone must take the gospel to them. You know what you need to do? You need to hear what God has for you to do. To do your part in it. And everybody has a part. And if everybody, instead of would look at the big need and say, Oh, it's so overwhelming. There's millions of people. Just say, Lord, look. I'm here for probably, at the most, if I live a good life, 70 years. That's the average lifespan. I want to make my life count. I don't want to shoot in a million directions and get nothing done of permanent value. You just show me what my gifts are, and you point the direction that you want me to go, so that at the end of my life, I won't wipe my brow in frustration and think, I'm a failure. I'll say, it's finished. I've done what God told me to do. And I won't sweat the rest because I can die confidently that I performed the Father's will. Hearing the voice of God and doing what God calls us to do. In verse 3, it said he was seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple and he asked for alms. This guy had no idea what was about to happen. He had no idea that day as they laid old grandpa at the gate. Once again, that he would walk home on his own two feet. And he's asking for alms, and God's about to heal him. Does that kind of sound familiar to you? You find that you ask God for things, and God wants to give you greater things, and maybe you whine and complain because God hasn't asked, God hasn't given what you asked. Lord, I want this. Please give it to me. Why haven't you given it to me? Because I want to give you something better than that. I just want alms. You don't need it. You're going to get healed. The God of sweet surprises, who really desires to bless us far greater than you or I can imagine. And yet, so often in our arrogance, we're convinced that we know exactly what God should do in our lives. Oh, God, you must do this. And when he doesn't, we whine and we whimper. And God may have something greater. God, why didn't you get me this job? Why did I lose my job? Well, how do you know that... Six months you might be working at a job that pays more and that's just better for you. Be able to lead more people to the Lord. God knows what's best. And fixing his eyes on him. King James has it the best. The old King James says, fastening his eyes upon him. They were riveted as they made eye contact. With John, Peter said, look at us. I find that interesting because usually a beggar in shame, will not look at another person. Go to a country where you see begging. You don't see many beggars giving eye contact. Their heads are down, their hands are up. They're in shame. This man says, look at us. Peter says, look at us. 
seeing the worth of that God-created individual. And I love this. He says, silver and gold I do not have. Now right there was a letdown for that man. He had his hand out. He had his hand out and he goes, Peter says, now, now look at us. And he goes, all right. Pulls out his wallet. Huh, sorry, I don't have any money. Oh, man. But what I do have, I'll give to you. Probably a little twitch in his eye like, yeah, what? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There was no money, but there was power. And I, I really love that. If I had to choose between the two, I'd choose the power. You know that the ministry, like the world, often equates power with money. It's a mistake almost every ministry has made since ministry has begun. We equate power with money. Oh, if we only had more money, we'd have more power to reach more people. Yes, I agree in one sense, but you know, we overestimate the power of money. And we underestimate the power of God. We think that God needs to do it through money. So give to my ministry. So I can reach the lost. Because I'll have more power. What happened to the days of saying, silver and gold have I none? But power I have. Because the Lord is in me. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I take power over money any day. Power over property any day. And yes, God has blessed us financially. I don't want to minimize that. We have resources and every Christian is responsible to give of his or her resources to do the work of the Lord. And God uses that. And yes, it's more convenient to own a building, to buy land next door, to fix up the kid's side. But you know what? If we lost it all, God doesn't close up shop, folks. We think he does. We really do. We think if the money doesn't come in, God's work isn't going to get done. That's baloney. All we have to do if there's no money is say, okay, now what do you want us to do? We've got the resources. You have the Holy Spirit living within every Christian. What more do you need? I look at churches in Thailand. I look at churches in China, in Hong Kong, in India, in the Philippines. They don't have a lot of silver and gold. But a lot of them are saying in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I heard one time of an evangelist traveling from town to town and after the evening he was counting the four offerings that he had taken that night. And as they were counting the money, the evangelist said, Oh, oh no longer can we say silver and gold have I not. One of the ushers heard him saying that. It was helping him count the money. He said, yeah, but you neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk either. You've lost power. You've got property, but you've lost power. There's another principle here. It's obvious that they could not give financially, right? They didn't have any silver or gold. They didn't have a $5 bill in their pocket. I don't have any money. The principle is you can never give what you don't have. But you must give what you do have. What don't you have? And what do you have as a Christian? Perhaps you don't have finances. Perhaps you do. Perhaps you don't have the gift of miracles and healing. Perhaps you have something else. Whatever you do have, give. 
You see, they didn't use this excuse. The excuse, well, we just don't have any money, I just can't help. They didn't use that as an excuse for lack of involvement. They bent down, knowing what God had called them to do, and what they did have, they gave. And that's true of every Christian. You're not responsible to give what you don't have, and you shouldn't feel guilty if you don't have it. But if you do have it, help. Whatever you have, help and use as resources. I found an interesting set of statistics that uh, aren't with me right now. I was going to share them with you, but they're not in my Bible like they should be. So I blew that one. Let's go on. You know, you might think, by the way, well, I don't have much to give to the Lord. I just don't have many gifts. I can't sing like some of these people sing around here. And I don't teach. And Hey, you know what? Whatever you have, if you would just lay it over in Jesus' hands, He can bless it and break it and multiply it like He did for the 5,000. When they got up on the mountain and one of the disciples said, Jesus, send them away. There's thousands of them. We don't have any food. What are you going to do? Jesus said, you feed them. What? Oh, we got just, we don't have anything. So, well, what do you have? Well, I have a few loaves and fish. Give them to me. He blessed them, broke them, and it fed everybody. If you just give him what you have, he can multiply it. And he can use it. You know, the, the greatest hindrance is unbelief. I can't do it. I won't do it. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. Do something and give it to the Lord and let him multiply it. Whatever I have, I will give to you. I think we're going to close in just a second. I want to end with this principle. Did you notice that this man was not expecting to be healed, and yet he was healed? What was he looking for? Did he stand up and say, well, he couldn't stand up. Did he raise his hand and say, I believe that I'm going to be healed right now? No, he wanted a buck. He didn't have faith in that he was going to be healed. You see, there's an awful lot of people who say, well, you know, you're not healed, brother, because you don't have enough faith. And if you did, you'd be healed. So it proves you're living a Satan-defeated life and your faith isn't grown enough. Now, didn't I just edify you by telling you you failed in your faith? You know what? Oftentimes, most of the time, faith unlocks the key to receiving gifts from God, believing that God will do what He said He'll do. I agree. But you know, in the New Testament, there are many times when people had no faith and it was the other person's faith that healed them. It was Peter who had the faith. In fact, from verse 11 all the way through, he describes his faith as a gift of God. But this man wasn't looking to be healed, looking for a buck. Remember the story when Jesus was in town? People crowded in to hear Jesus. You can imagine, Jesus is in town. He's top billing. I'm going to go hear him. Nobody could get in that house. And there was a man who was being carried by his friends who was a paralytic. Remember, they got up on top of the roof, tore open the tiles, and let the guy down. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man in the stretcher, not his faith. This guy had no faith. This guy's been tortured by disease all his life. And he didn't say, I believe He was sick. His faith was shot. Jesus saw their faith. 
And oftentimes, Jesus can heal a person who has absolutely no faith at all and just blows their minds. And that's why it actually makes me nauseated. When I hear people spout off, saying, you don't have enough faith, that's why you have this sickness, this disease, this problem in your life. Well, you know what then, pal? Heal them with your faith. You go into the hospital if you have all the faith and do what this guy did. Lift him out of bed and heal him with your faith. Happened in the New Testament. That's a scriptural precedent. See, so much guilt has been heaped upon people in this very area. I remember getting a phone call years ago from a young man who heard a program I did on the radio somewhere. And he said, I'm so grateful for that teaching because I am suffering with a disease. They can't cure it. It's been going on for years. And my parents come home constantly. And they point the finger at me and they say, if you only had enough faith, you'd walk. You wouldn't have this disease. Well, that's not fair. Heaping guilt upon somebody. Well, you know, if you talk about faith so much, mom and dad, then raise me up. When Jesus saw their faith, He said, get up. And Peter and John had the faith. And you know, that takes faith. It's one thing to say, rise up and walk. But the real step of faith came when it says in verse 7, He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Yeah, that's a real step of faith. I mean, we can all say, I believe you're going to walk. Or to say, Lord, heal him. But it's another thing to pick up somebody in a chair and say, get up, start walking. That's faith. And I bet as he was doing it, Satan was whispering, thinking, what if he falls? <laughs> They're going to get you for harassing the lame in this city. <laughs> That's not a nice joke if he falls down on the pavement. But this was a gift of God, you see. For Peter said it was the faith, later on, that he says, that was given to him by the Lord. Immediately, his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And so leaping up, he stood and he walked and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And notice, they really reacted. They knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. This shows us, number one, that Jesus is continuing to work through his church. But this teaches us another lesson. There's a type here, I see. Just as here's a man who's perched up by the beautiful gate, he's got a disease, he can't walk, he's lame, he's sitting by the gate the beautiful gate of the temple, which is 75 feet high, made of Corinthian bronze. He has this beautiful panorama of the city. People go by him every day, the greatest scholars, the greatest religious people, the greatest theologians, philosophers of his time, walk by him constantly. And yet, he, although he was such a beautiful position, was able to see the beautiful temple, people worshiping God, the sacrifice, and of all of these philosophers and theologians walk by him every day, he was none the better for it. And what a picture of the world, isn't it? Here's the world perched. And we have our philosophers, our filmmakers, our writers, our psychologists, 
writing all these books, giving us all the information, and the world, by and large, is none the better for it. Still lame, still in a beggarly condition of sin. And it's Christianity that comes along that can lift a man up, and Jesus that comes along and can make that lame person living in sin walk. Bring it to its feet and say walk. Christianity comes to give life. It takes hold of people whose lives are out of joint and puts them on their feet again, which is what God intended. I had the view at one time that God wanted to torment me if I ever became a Christian. I was certain that He would stick me into this mold that I had seen. I was deathly afraid of it. And I found that He came to give life, not to take it away. I found that He came to restore the ability to stand rather than to make me lame. And see, I always thought, well, Christians are lame. I found out that He comes to heal and to make right. And you know, if you have never turned your life over to Jesus, then you're still going to be sitting by that gate forever lame. Having people walk by with philosophies and you'll try this and you'll listen to that and you'll have your hand out all your life. But you'll never stand. You'll never walk. You'll never know freedom. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, tonight is your night to walk and follow the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to You that You have a plan for every individual, every person who is laden with sin, who is lamed and paralyzed because of separation from You. People who are in a condition by birth, that natural man born in sin, and none can help himself and no philosophy, no psychology, no book, no film can help. But Lord, You come along and You desire to make whole and to have people receive strength and to walk and follow You. And Lord, I pray that tonight, at this very moment, that Your Holy Spirit would touch hearts and convince them that You love them that You want to take over their life. You want to restore them.